There are uh, many famous gardens all over the world. Uh, many people think when they think of a beautifully manicured garden of the Palace of Versailles in France, uh, Royal Chateau of Louis XIV, a place where amazing history has taken place. I've never been to this garden, but you can just tell how amazing it is. And uh, the picture, some of you I'm sure have been there, are just astounded at the beauty of this place. A uh, second garden that is pretty amazing, this one in Italy, is uh, Tivoli, or Tivoli. Uh, this particular garden is a place of over uh, several hundred fountains, actually, uh, just near Rome, the gorgeous terrace hillside is a engineering marvel because the fountains, all the many hundreds of them, are actually only fed by water through a gravity system. There are no pumps. There are no manual controls. And they've been running for hundreds of years. And it's just astounding uh, the way they work with the water pressure and the gravity. And it's a, a garden that is quite amazing. If you come to our own country in America, you've got the Garden of the Gods uh, in Colorado Springs. My wife is from Colorado. This is the area she grew up in, and uh, she married me and came to Michigan. Um, well, we have our beauty, too, but I, I wish they would change the name to the Garden of God, don't you? There's no manufacturing here. There's no marvel of engineering. There's just the marvel of God's awesome power in creating. And it is a display of the God who loves beauty. And then, of course, you have also in America the Boston Garden. Or actually, <laughs> Garden, the Boston Garden. And uh, founded, uh, built in, in 1928 where the Celtics played basketball and the Bruins played hockey until it was demolished in uh, 1998. So it had a run for about 70 years and uh, was uh, kind of an ugly place, but a lot of important things happened there sports-wise. Now we come to the biblical side and you've got uh, the Garden of Eden, right? Here's an actual picture of the Garden of Eden. Well, you know, it's not an actual picture because if you look in the lower left-hand corner, there's a rotting tree, and you wouldn't see that in the Garden of Eden. But I imagine it's a place of unparalleled beauty, right? Uh, and when I think of beauty, the lush green and the waterfall certainly depicts that. But today we're going to be talking about another biblical garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, God's gardens are legendary, not simply for their beauty, but they're more famous for their groans. Think of it, the Garden of Eden, where there was such perfection, is the place where mankind fell, and the groan of humanity has never stopped. We are under the weight of sin. We feel our own depravity, and we're groaning, and even creation is groaning because of what happened by way of disobedience in that garden. The groaning, however, in the Garden of Gethsemane is the groaning of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and look at Jesus in the garden. Mark, chapter 14. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, here is a rich portion of Scripture that will fill our mind and soul with great thoughts of the love of God. 
We read in verse 32, so this is Mark 14, 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, it literally means olive press, and it was a walled garden, probably privately owned. My best guess is that Jesus had a wealthy friend who gave him the keys to the garden, and they were able to get in and use it, and he did use it on uh, many occasions. In fact, Luke chapter 22 says it was his custom to go to the garden. There weren't many gardens, if any, in the city of Jerusalem. It was too populated, but there were these wonderful, gorgeous gardens just outside, and this is just outside the eastern wall. And Jesus is going to go through his own olive press. He's going to go through his own time of temptation and pressure. And when we think of an olive press, it's just a, a huge stone that rolls over the grapes and, and extracts the juice out of them, and the process of crushing is what it's all about. And Jesus is going to be crushed in this garden, thus his groaning. It's a solemn place. It's a sacred place. He went there with his disciples, and he said to eight of them, Sit here while I pray. And he took three of them, Peter, James, and John, along with him deeper into the garden. Now, how come that only comes up to 11? <laughs> because the 12th was out betraying Jesus, right? So Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the elite, as it were, the people who were able to get in sometimes uh, into an experience that none of the other disciples ever saw. Uh, these three were on the Mount of Transfiguration. These three saw the daughter of Jairus raised from the dead. And now these three are going to hear the groans of Christ in prayer like no one has ever heard if they would have been awake. Scripture tells us in verse 33 that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. What I want to do as we go through this is to focus on the person of Christ. There's many other ways we could look at this time and study his prayer and study the failure of the disciples, but look at Christ, the emotion of Jesus. And we use this word groaning because it is indeed depictive of what he's going through. Deeply distressed. Deeply troubled. Who are we talking about? The perfect son of God. God in human flesh. And he says in verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed. Jesus overwhelmed? It's exactly what the text says. You see, on, on the cross you have the agony of his body, but in the garden you have the agony of his soul, and this was far more intense than the physical suffering that he would have to endure. He is overwhelmed. I don't even know what that means when we talk about God, the Son, being overwhelmed. And I don't think you can just deny it uh, or divide it between his humanity and his deity and his humanity is overwhelmed and his deity is having a nice day. No, it's so intermixed and so mysterious. We've got to let this kind of sink into our soul. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm dying here he's saying to his disciples. 
And this is probably an allusion to Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why so disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Mark says more about the emotions of Jesus than any other gospel writer. He's the one who depicts his anger and his sorrow to the depths that we don't see anywhere else. As someone has well said, we almost feel like we shouldn't be intruding into this scene. It's too intimate. It's too private as Jesus unloads his soul. The most memorable glimpse into the humanity of Jesus found anywhere in the scriptures is right here. His emotions, raw. I think he asked his disciples to pray because he wanted some prayer support. He wanted some companionship in his darkest hour, but he didn't get it. Dr. Luke in his gospel, Luke 22, adds this. When Jesus was praying, it was like sweating drops of blood, right? Now, there's a bit of a debate as to whether it was actual blood that was coming out of his pores or merely he was sweating so much it was like someone who was bleeding profusely. But the point is, the emotion has so taken over him that his body is coming even close to the point of death. And listen to this. This is from the writer of Hebrews. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, when Jesus offered up prayers with supplications and with strong crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. And though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So we read in verse 35 that going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground. And it's interesting if you put all the facts together from the different gospel writers that that Luke says he fell to his knees and Matthew says he fell on his face. And here is Jesus pouring out all these emotions now in prayer. The heart of God crying. And this is what I see. Oh, how he loves you and me. Right? As Jesus pours out his soul in the garden, it's a declaration of his great love for us. And before the death takes place, he's got to go through the agony of soul, which leads to his surrender in prayer. Verse 35, he falls to the ground and he prays, if it is possible, may the hour pass from me. And then he says, Father, Abba, everything is possible for you. Now we notice the emotion of Christ in the expression of Jesus submitting to the perfect will of the Father, the submission of Christ and his soul being offered in this amazing prayer. Notice the request. He seems to be asking God for something that he knows God will not do. He seems to be asking for something that he knows God doesn't intend to do. 
which by the way is kind of instructive for us in our prayers sometimes we ought to pour out our hearts to God and as R.T. France said the only limits in prayer are these what is the will of God and even that Jesus is pushing if it's possible all things are possible with you now is everything possible for God from one perspective the answer is no God cannot sin But what Jesus is saying is all things are possible for you, meaning whatever you want to do, you can do it. And so pushing the limits of God's will in prayer, there was one thing he feared that caused him to pray like this. And I don't think it was the cross. The one thing Jesus feared was this indescribable experience that he had never had of being separated from God the Father. Jesus had never been God forsaken his entire life. From all eternity, the Father and the Son had perfect fellowship. And now there was on the horizon this breaking apart of the Trinity. And I think that's what shook Jesus to the depths of his soul. If possible, let this cup, this separation pass from me. All things are possible for you. Let the hour pass. Take the cup away, saying the same thing. In the midst of the sufferings that I have to endure, may I not be separated from you. Now I want you to notice two things in verse 36. Abba, the Aramaic word for father. There is a debate as to whether the English word daddy is too informal of a translation. And it may be. But there is a more formal word in Aramaic for father, and this isn't that. This is the word that speaks of intimacy and love. But someone has said maybe the best way to translate it is is that it simply means my father. And it focuses on an intimate relationship that you have with your own father. And it's this wonderful connection that Jesus draws upon in his darkest hour so that he can get through this unbelievable suffering. By the way, when you and I are resigned to the Father's will, it's not just any father, it's Abba, Father. We are giving ourselves in to the will of him who loves us more than we love ourselves. And a relationship so deep, so intimate that it can never be broken. Someone as well said, if we call God our Father, everything becomes bearable. Hmm. No human has ever experienced the depths of soul that Jesus is going through in the garden. But some of you have experienced unbelievable trials, and some of you are going through them right now. And I simply want to encourage you with these words. Jesus knows what you're going through because he's been there. Do you feel forsaken of God? Jesus knows what that feels like. Do you cry in prayer and and, and it doesn't seem to turn out exactly like you want? Jesus knows about that. But when you call God your Father, there is a grace and a mercy in it that allows you to bear it. 
Someone said that Jesus in his darkest hour was drawing upon this wonderful name, Abba Father, and could endure being God forsaken. And when you and I trust Christ, he knows what we're going through and we experience his God acceptance. That is the relationship that the Father has to the Son and is seen after the death of Christ, evidence in the resurrection of Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, welcomes him into heaven, and the acceptance that Christ receives is but a measure of our own. So he was forsaken for us so that we could be accepted in him. What a mystery. This thing called the communion service that depicts the sufferings of our Savior. And notice the word cup in verse 36. What does that refer to? Well, the Old Testament prophets help us out, in particular Isaiah and Jeremiah, but also Habakkuk, who said that the cup often referred to the sins of man on the one hand or on the wrath of God on the other. So the nations are going to drink the cup of their own sins or the nations are going to drink the cup of God's wrath and indignation. And when you go to the book of the Revelation, they're both there. Revelation 14 and verse 10 talks about the cup of God's wrath. Those who reject him will drink the wine of his wrath, his full fury, his indignation, just judgment. And then we read in Revelation 17 and verse 4 that they'll be drinking the cup of abomination, the cup of their own sin. And Jesus looked into that cup and saw the sin of humanity all its brutality, all of its wickedness, its blasphemy, its arrogance, its licentiousness. He looked in and saw all of that. This is the pure Son of God and didn't want to drink the cup because he knew it would mean separation from God. And the cup that he was going to drink was all the wrath of God being poured out against sinners, all in a cup. Amazing. By the way, we're all going to drink the cup. But you have a choice. You can drink the cup of your own sin, which leads to the cup of God's wrath, or you can drink the cup of his love. This is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. That's what we say when we take the cup, the juice, the blood. Drink that cup and you won't have to drink of the wrath of God because Jesus drank the cup for you. And what do you say to that? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the one who endures God's wrath on our behalf. Someone put it this way, the greatest display of obedience ever known in all humanity is when Jesus took the full chalice of man's sin and the full cup of God's wrath, looked deep into the cup and drank damnation dry. <laughs> took it all. Oh, how he loved you and me, right? And that's why this service should be so moving. The request seemed to push the limits of God's will, 
But the resignation was, and notice it, not my will, but yours be done. That's the way every prayer should end. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John, he also said, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. He was all about the Father's will, yet in prayer, he expressed the burden of his soul. And there's nothing inconsistent with that when we pray as well, as long as we submit to the Father like Jesus did. But then there's something else I see in this amazing section of Scripture, not only the emotion of Jesus and the submission of Jesus, but thirdly, the frustration of Jesus. And here he is reproving the disciples. Talk about a contrast. The fervency of Christ and his submission to the will of God matched against the failure of the disciples. Verse 37, he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he says to the leader, couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. You need to be in prayer. That's the only way you can survive the temptation that's coming. I ask you to pray and watch more for yourself than for me. Yes, I want the support, but you need this prayer strength before you go into the greatest temptation of your life. And they couldn't do it. Three times Jesus went away and prayed the very same thing, which, by the way, underscores the truth that it's not wrong to repeat your prayers. It's only wrong when the prayers become vain repetition. Vain repetition is you saying the same prayer over and over, almost mindlessly, thinking that if I say it 200 times, that's better than 100. If I keep repeating the mantra, the more times I say it, the better off it is. No, no, that's vain repetition. But you can repeat the same prayer as long as it has your heart in it. And Jesus went and repeated the very same words in prayer. May the hour pass. May the cup be taken. Not my will, but yours be done. And every time the disciples were sleeping, Jesus knew that they would desert him. And yet it would still sting. The abandonment and their failure was such a disappointment to him. And I believe the Savior looks at us and sees our lack of prayer and is equally disappointed and frustrated. Our greatest failures are prayer failures. It's where it all starts. And if we will not show our dependence upon God and his will in prayer, then we are going to know what it is to run and flee at every trial that comes our way. Later on, Peter was able to say this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, the cross is all about atonement for our sin, but there is an aspect of the cross that is exemplary for us. And as Jesus suffered, yet surrendered to the will of God, that's exactly what we need to do. In prayer, we need to face our trials surrendered to the will of God. Jesus has given us the example. We need to walk in his steps. So when fiery trials come your way and they will 
When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, God's grace, all sufficient, will be your supply. And the flame will not hurt you. His only design is your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So if I can say, Abba, Father, I can bear up and under any trial he sends my way. So every time you see a garden, remember this. Oh, how he loves you and me. I was pastoring in a, another state years ago, and it was a very difficult pastorate. The church was battling, and there was little peace in the congregation. And I remember coming to a communion service, and we decided for the first time to sim, sing something other than a hymn. Up to that point, the church would only sing hymns out of the hymn book. And so we decided to really go out on the limb and do something really novel and really contemporary. We would sing a praise chorus, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. That was novel and contemporary in that time. Some people didn't like it. There might have been someone who walked out because we sang, Oh, How He Loves You and Me, at a communion service. And the words were etched into my soul. Jesus to Calvary to go. His love for sinners to show. What he did there brought hope from despair. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. In almost every church I've been at, when someone says, what do you want to sing for communion? I say, oh, how he loves you and me. And I read this prayer of Christ, and I see his emotion, and I see his submission, and I see his frustration, and I say, oh, how he loves us, to the point where he will never let us go. Someone has well said that the Father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. He didn't say he will never cause us tears, but never cause us needless tears. And things that happen to us aren't right, and they are tragedies, and nothing, there's nothing wrong with being upset and angry at what happens when it is so wrong in this mixed-up world. But remember this, God can sanctify the worst situations, and his grace can make them bearable. And in the midst of the time when we feel God-forsaken, sing these words, Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we take this communion this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, the bread that speaks of your broken body, the blood that speaks of your atonement for us, May we embrace what you did on the cross in drinking the cup of our sin and God's wrath by drinking the cup of your atonement and aligning ourselves by faith with you and you alone. And thank you for demonstrating your love to us on the cross. May our love to you express our faith and our submission. In Jesus' name.